Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. beginning uh, the book of Deuteronomy. I know it started last week, but we weren't together. Uh, so just to kind of set the stage about where we are in Torah, we are at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy. Today, for our Parsha et Hanan, we are in chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Um, and we are in this book that is the fifth in the Pentateuch. It is uh, also the fifth book, if you look at the Hexateuch. So um, really, it doesn't make a lot of sense that we read five books instead of six, but that's how it is. Um, there's lots of Midrashic tradition around why five books instead of six. We are in Deuteronomy, which is the beginning of the Deuteronomic history. So... Uh, so the, the Deuteronomy begins the Deuteronomic history, and it continues, right, into Joshua, into, uh, and so we have other things written by the author D, right, that source that we call the school of Deuteronomy, the D source. Um, but, but for lots of reasons that, uh, like I said, is, uh, the Midrashic tradition is replete with, um, there, we stop at the end of this particular part of the Deuteronomic history, which ends uh, with Moshe's death on the other side of the Yardane, on the far side of the Jordan. So, but that episode is moved. It is cut from where it originally was at the end of Numbers, and it is moved over to the end of Deuteronomy once Deuteronomy is added to the four books Genesis, Exodus, number, sorry, the, the, uh, Deuteronomic history is added to Genesis, uh, Exodus numbers. Uh, Deuteronomy is added to that. When Deuteronomy gets added to that, they cut the end of numbers and put it at the end of Deuteronomy. Leviticus is its own source that is inserted into the national story, right? Genesis, Exodus, numbers. Deuteronomy, in terms of kind of t telling and retelling the story, um, Leviticus is plopped in there. That priestly manual is plopped in there. Um, so it's kind of freestanding. It stands uh, in, in many ways by itself. Um, okay. So the Deuteronomic history that, that we're, what we're beginning now is three speeches. The book of Deuteronomy are three speeches made by Moshe. This is the beginning of the end of the life and leadership of Moshe. Uh, lots of ink has been uh, spent on talking about kind of the character Moshe vis-a-vis -vis his death, vis-a-vis -vis, um, the end of his mission. Like we get this wonderful character all the way through. There's, there's lots of stuff uh, written about kind of this last part of Moshe's career and the character of these speeches that he gives. Uh, and then the whole understanding of um, of his death, because often um, the place where a, a sacred leader would a prophet would be uh, buried or where he died, you know, all that stuff would have become a spot of veneration, uh, and that is often the tradition where someone is martyred, where they are you know, rumored according to tradition to have 
died or been killed or whatever becomes a sacred focus. Um, on purpose, our tradition does not give us the place that Moshe dies. We're told the name of the mountain. There's no way to know which mountain is Mount Nebo. So, um, so, or Sinai, by the way, right? We, we don't know which mountain is Mount Sinai. We don't know which mountain is Mount Nebo. That was on purpose. Lots of stuff about, okay, why does Moshe not, not get into the promised land, Bichlal, at all, begging God at the end of Deuteronomy, and God answers no. Um, and actually we have it in, uh, in, uh, this week's Parsha before chapter five, where we're not gonna read. Um, but, but Moshe begs God this week at the beginning of the Parsha, please rethink your decision to not let me enter the promised land. And God says no. Um, so lots about that, um, has, has been written. All right. So. If you want one of the best explications of the book of Deuteronomy, I cannot recommend highly enough. The Tikva Fund sponsored a series of eight lectures by the Hartman, brilliant scholar, our favorite man, Mark Edelstein, our favorite, um, Micha Goodman. Uh, and Micha Goodman gave eight lectures through the Tikva Fund that you can enroll for free to watch. It is some of the best explanation of what's going on in Deuteronomy that I have ever heard. I brought it to you last time we studied Deuteronomy. I will remind us of a lot of what Micha teaches. Um, but this week, um, we are looking at uh, a hunk of Torah that is quite busy for us because it contains the Shema, the Ve'ahavta, and the Ten Commandments. So there is a lot there. This is like Bert Kleinman's, like, I don't know, dream of the universe come true, that all those things are together in one parsha that we're going to talk about. Um, because it's so loaded, obviously, I'm not going to spend too much time on one of those things. Um, what I'd like us to do, rather than, stu- than focus so much on Shema and Behafta, since we do a lot, I, I mean, I want it, we're going to go there, or on the Decalogue, this, I, I'd like to kind of touch on different pieces of those pieces. And I'd like us to actually spend some time reading and thinking about those pieces in context. We so often encounter them out of context. We are so used to the Shema and Ve'ahavta being a prayer and part of the liturgy that we often don't study it as Torah. I mean, we, we treat it as Torah, I know that, but but we really relate to it as liturgy. And we don't so much see it the way we normally encounter texts, even texts we love, we encounter them in situ and kind of understand them as they come to us in the corpus of the literature, some of which is connected to the literature of the ancient Near East, some of which is connected to Jewish thinking as it is reconstructed, um, and all that good kind of stuff. So I'd like us to do that today. I'm open to any questions you have. I'm sure Bert will have lots to say about um, those texts and his favorite interpretations of them, right, Bert? Yeah. Okay. Um, so we can trust that's going to happen. Um, I brought on purpose a different translation today because um, I read a couple of things that he uh, did with his translation about these texts that I just thought, okay, so I'm just going to read his his uh, interpretation. Instead, you can look. I'm going to put up Hebcal so you can see at home. Um, those of you here who have a Bible, you can see your translation. Let's hold lots of different ways of translating so that we remember that this is Hebrew. It is not English, right? So this is Hebrew, and people are going to interpret those different ways, translate those different ways. But Robert Alter 
um, really spent a lot of time on the on his translation. Um, uh, it's a life's work, really, um, of the uh, entire Torah. Um, he's a he's a literary guy, so he's he does all of his translation based on kind of literary treatment of the biblical Hebrew language. Um, and so I'm I'm going to read his translation um, as we begin looking at the actual text. Okay, here we go. Chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. And Moses called to Israel and said to them, Hear, Israel, the statutes and the laws that I am about to speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and watch to do them. The Lord your God sealed a covenant with us at Chorev. Not with our fathers did God seal this covenant, but with us, who are who, we who are here today, all of us alive. Face to face did the Lord speak with you on the mountain from the midst of the fire. I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to tell you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid in the face of fire and did not go up to the mountain, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slaves. You shall have no other gods beside me. You shall make you no carved likeness, no image of what is in the heavens above or what is on the earth below or what is in the waters beneath the earth. You shall not bow to them and you shall not worship them. For I am the Lord your God, a jealous God, reckoning the crime of fathers with sons and with the third generation and with the fourth for my foes and doing kindness to the thousandth generation for my friends and for those who keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not acquit whoever takes his name in vain. Keep the Sabbath day to hallow it as the Lord your God has charged you. Six days you shall work and you shall do your tasks, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall do no task, you and your son, your daughter, and your male slave, and your slave girl, and your ox, and your donkey, and all your beasts, and your sojourner who was within your gates, so that your male slave and your slave girl may rest like you. And you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought you out from there with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore did the Lord charge you to make the Sabbath day. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God charged you, so that your days may be long, and so that he may do well with you on the soil that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder, and you shall not commit adultery, and you shall not steal, and you shall not bear vain witness against your fellow man, and you shall not covet your fellow man's wife, and you shall not desire your fellow man's house, his field, or his male servant, or his slave girl, his ox, or his donkey, or anything that your fellow man has. These words did the Lord speak to your whole assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire, the cloud, and the dense fog in a great voice, and nothing more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. And it happened when you heard voice from the midst of the darkness with the mountain burning in fire that you came forward to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, look, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. This day we have seen that the Lord can speak to man and he may live. And now, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. 
If we hear again the voice of the Lord our God, we shall die. For who is mortal flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we did and has lived? You go near and hear all that the Lord our God says. And you it is who will speak to us all that the Lord our God speaks to you and we shall hear and do. And the Lord heard the sound of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the sound of the words of this people which they spoke to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Would that they have this heart of theirs to fear me and keep my commandments for all time so that it would go well with them and with their sons forever. Go, say to them, return to your tents and you stand here by me. And I shall speak to you all the commands and the statutes and the laws that you will teach them. And they will do them in the land that I am about to give them to take hold of it. And you shall watch to do as the Lord your God has charged you. You shall not swerve to the right or the left in all the way that the Lord your God has charged you. You shall go so that you may live and it will be well with you. And you will long endure on the land of which you are to take hold. Chapter 5 of the book of Deuteronomy. So you hear how the Ten Commandments here are encapsulated in a larger story that Moses is telling about Revelation. If you put all the texts dealing with the Ten Utterances together from Exodus, from Deuteronomy, because remember we get two recitations of the Ten Commandments. They are different slightly from each other. Um, and so um, if you take all of the texts relating to the incident and the reporting of the incident, you cannot make a cohesive, logical set of inferences about what actually happened and in what order and exactly what words were written on the tablets. We can't do it. Scholars have tried. Way smarter than us have tried and they can't do it because there are varying traditions. And as we keep saying, the editor looking at ancient Near Eastern literary traditions is not interested in harmonizing those versions. The more important thing is to make it interesting the way our great grandmothers used to make quilts. You didn't make it out of one piece of fabric so that it all matched. That is not what made a quilt interesting. What made it interesting? What makes a tapestry interesting? Or as I used to be pro at hook rugs. What makes them interesting is that there are many different things all put together to make an visually interesting um, collage, if you will, pattern, right? So, but it, it's, it's the fact that they're different and bumping up against each other that make them interesting. For the ancient Near Eastern reader, of of this kind of traditional literature, that's what was important. Hearing the resonances of all of the different texts that were before the Deuteronomist, before the person who wrote Exodus, who was before the person who wrote Genesis, down. There were lots of texts in front of these people. They pulled from those texts to make the book of Genesis, to make the book of Deuteronomy. People were listening for their version, the one they grew up with, right? The melody, their melody for Adon Olam or L'Chadudi, right? Like 
That's what they're listening for. They don't need it all to sound or look or be the same. We get frustrated with that. That's okay. We're allowed to. But if we can just appreciate that they're not interested in harmonizing, the rabbis needed to because the rabbis are apologists for the actual text to be like fundamentally, literally understood. We don't have that issue. We don't have that problem. That's great. Um, they did. So there's lots of Midrash. If, if you remember in Lachadodi, Shamor Vizachor Bedibor Echad. What is that? That is a piece of Midrash. What is that Midrash? Shamor, keep, Vizachor, remember, the Sabbath day. One version is from Exodus, one version is from Deuteronomy. It's a different verb. Shamor, Zachor. Keep, guard, protect, observe. That's all the word Shamor. That is the word we have here in Deuteronomy. In Exodus, it says Zachor et Yom HaShabbat. Remember the Sabbath day. In Exodus, remember the Sabbath day, Likod show to keep it holy. Why? Because God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, God rested. That is not the reason we're given Shabbat here. Why are we given, what's Shabbat about in Deuteronomy? Shamor, right? You're to observe, keep Shabbat. Why? What's it about? You were slaves in the land of Egypt. You were freed from the house of Beit Avadim, the house of slavery, you were freed from there. So you will allow your male and female slaves, your animals, you will allow everything to not be a slave on that day. Just as God was creator in Exodus, you will do imitatio Dei. You will imitate God by resting as God did on the seventh day here. So here in Deuteronomy, Shamor et Yom HaShabbat, you will remember it's the Sabbath day. You will do imitatio dei. You will imitate God. Just as God liberated you, God as liberator, instead of God as creator who rested, God as liberator, you will be a liberator once a week. That's how you will imitate God. Just as God liberated you, you will liberate your avadim, your slaves. Notice Deuteronomy assumes you have slaves. Deuteronomy is not interested in fixing the system that leads to indentured servitude. That is not Deuteronomy's interest. Not with Shabbat, not with Shemitah, right, the, the sabbatical year for the land, not for Jubilee. Deuteronomy is not interested in addressing the brokenness of the system and what should be done instead so that there aren't people who have to sell themselves into indentured servitude. That is not Deuteronomy's interest. What is Deuteronomy's interest? Deuteronomy's interest is in addressing the mind state of the people who create the system that results in inequities, just because there's drought, there's pestilence, there's whatever. Things happen that, that are going to make the system, like some people are going to suffer, some are going to do well, right? Deuteronomy is interested in addressing the mindset, the, the worldview, the practice of the people who are then supposed to design a system to answer the inequities that occur. Does that make sense? 
How does Deuteronomy believe you do that? One day a week, everyone is equalized. One day a week, you will express your power by imitating the most powerful, the Lord our God, who is a liberator. So you will imitate God using your power once a week like God does God's power to liberate. And your slaves and your people and your cattle and your whatever that you're used to using as instruments become your equal that day. Because y'all were slaves. It's, they are not fundamentally different from you in any way. It was y'all. And God acted as liberator. That's how you have the ability to sit in your wonderful vineyard and watch people work for you. Yes, Judith. At the beginning, you you talked about Moses being denied the um, privilege of going across mm-hmm. and seeing the land. I'm wondering if this same principle applies to Moses being forbidden to do that. God had decided that there was one exception. There was one day to rest, to free people. There was one time when God decided Moses had done his job and it was time to change. A separation of days, a separation of a person from a job. I mean, I think it's consistent with how the Torah understands how creation exists is through separation. But there's a time you know, to work, there's a time to not work, there's time to be the leader, a time to not be the leader. For sure, you know, the, you know, boundaries are really important to Torah and continue to be important to the rabbis. So anyway, that, and I want to credit the teacher, Noam Zion. He's the one who has this wonderful article, the triple, triple Shabbat, um, Sabbath, Jubilee, Sabbath, Shemitah, and Jubilee. Um, talking about this idea that it really is about trying to address the mindset of the Israelite. This is addressed, all of this is addressed to landed wealthy Israelites because they're the ones who are making the decisions. They're the ones making the system. They're the ones setting it all up. So they're the ones that need to be told how to think, how to be, how to approach things so that they will create a system that is more just. We get some discussion of the system, the judiciary, limits on the king, all that stuff is happening in Deuteronomy, centralization of worship. We we get some of it, but we don't get a lot of economic, like this is how the system should be. But we do get, you must remember, you didn't get, you know, like made, landed, comfortable people. You, You didn't earn it. It was a gift. You need to always remember that. And you need to make sure you are treating the people in your household, Israelite man, that you're treating all the people in your household in line with the fact that this was a gift. And you only earn staying in the land you're about to acquire by making sure you do that. Okay. Questions so far on this stuff, Mark? You know, I I can't help thinking about these things in psychological terms, but... um, it seems that uh, one of the motivations that might be involved for the Deuteronomy uh, author uh, is really limiting not just the external power, but the internal sense of mastery yes. uh, over others who are regarded essentially as, as slaves, subservient, uh, 
kinds of people. And also from the point of view of, of those people, the people who are not in power, it uh, is a way of uh, indicating uh, or limiting their dependency on, on power. Nice. Well said, Mark. Yes. So the Israelite has to check constantly, right, our tendency to use other people, right? I use, like it's this internal sense of mastery. Um, and I think it's a really good point that Mark brings up, which is also to communicate to anyone who lives in the Israelite community, your status may be that of slave. That says nothing about your inherent anything. Inherently, the Israelite who's running the estate is no different from you. Their ancestors were slaves in Egypt, right? So I think it's a really important point, right, that folks at the bottom of the ladder once a week are reminded, this is not inherent. This is situational. This has nothing to do with who you are just as a human being, which I think is important because so often the whole system is designed to do exactly the opposite, right? To remind you or to, to put forward the belief that you did somehow earn this status because you are left than, right? On fundamental levels. Yes, both, yes, both externally and internally. Absolutely. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> so again, I'm just going to read a little bit of uh, chapter six so that you hear the text in situ, um, according to the Deuteronomist. <clears throat> and this is the command, the statutes and the laws that the Lord your God has charged you to teach you to do in the land into which you are about to cross to take hold of it, so that you will fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commands which I charge you, you and your son and your son's son, all the days of your life, and so that your days will be long. And you shall hear, Israel, and you shall keep to do, that it may go well with you, and that you may greatly multiply, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken concerning you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your being and with all your might. And these words that I charge you today shall be upon your heart, and you shall rehearse them to your sons, and speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you go on the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as circlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and in your gates. And it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you to the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give to you, great and goodly towns that you did not build and houses filled with all the good that you did not fill and hewn cisterns that you did not hew, vineyards and olive groves that you did not plant, you will eat and be sated. Watch yourself, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of slaves. The Lord your God, you shall fear and him shall you serve and by his name shall you swear. You shall not go after other gods, for the gods of the people who are all about you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God in your midst, lest the wrath of the Lord your God flare against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not try the Lord your God as you tried him at Massah. 
you shall surely keep the command of the Lord your God and his treaty terms and his statutes with which he charged you. And you shall do what is right and good in the eyes of the Lord so that it may go well with you. And you shall come and take hold of the good land that the Lord swore to your fathers to drive back all your enemies before you as the Lord has spoken. Should your son ask you tomorrow saying, what are the treaty terms and the statutes and the laws with which the Lord our God has charged you? You shall say to your son, slaves were we to Pharaoh and Egypt, and the Lord brought us out with a strong hand, and the Lord wrought great and evil signs and portents against Egypt, against Pharaoh, and against all his house before our eyes. But us did he take out from there, so that he might bring us to give us the land that he swore to our fathers. And the Lord charged us to do these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our own good always, to keep us in life as on this day. And it will be a merit for us if we keep to do all this that is commanded before the Lord our God as he has charged us. Chapter 6 of the book of Deuteronomy. You hear the repetition by the Deuteronomist of the terms. These are the terms. This is an agreement. And if you keep the terms, then look at what do you get? You get to stay in the land that God swore to your ancestors, filled with farms and vineyards you did not plant. All this stuff that you did not do, you get to take it and use it and enjoy it as long as you keep your end of the deal. It is a contract. It is a breach. It is a covenant. And it is a deal. And if you break the deal, you're out. You are not special. You are special because I picked you. We are reminded over and over and over. You are special because I loved your ancestors. No reason. No reason is given that God picks Avraham. None. People go to great lengths, obviously, to say Avraham deserved it. <laughs> Not there. And in some ways, that actually for me detracts from the power of the story if you make Abraham deserving. It's a love story. Our story is a love story. Does the beloved ever deserve our love? No. Do they earn our love? No. We just love them. Kaha. That's just how it is. Go explain it. Nobody can figure it out. Why do you love someone? Why you stay with them, that's different. <laughs> how they earn keeping you is different. But why we love, right? The Torah is about a love story. And God is saying, I love your ancestors. And so that's why you get this offer. That's why you get this special 1999 free shipping and handling. You get this offer because I loved your ancestors. If you blow it, you are no different to me than anybody else. Okay, I just want to ask where the whole notion, that's not a notion, it's, it's said right here, of this jealous God, of this, you know, it's almost, that's almost the love story. Yes, <laughs> you, you, yes. Um, are unfaithful to me, I'm going to come get you. Yes. Um, but where is, does that figure into this, what is he jealous of that, that that the Jewish people, well, we're not Jewish people yet, but that we not be with these other gods who don't have that history, who don't have that whole moral system or they don't have that memory? 
or what is the, why this element of jealousy? Okay, so, so I want to be very clear about that word kinah in Hebrew, um, because we think of jealousy as an emotion. We think of it as a feeling, that God experiences jealousy, meaning God is envious of their worship of somebody else. That is not what jealousy means in the Torah. So, so thank you for bringing that up. Kinah is what one experiences when the person who owes one exclusive loyalty breaks that deal. It is the language of kings for vassal kings. I conquer you. I have exclusive right to your tribute, to your worship, to your allegiance, to your loyalty. I have exclusive rights to your focus and attention and behavior vis-a-vis certain things. You're not allowed to go to another queen and serve her. If you do, I have a right to kinah, to jealousy, and to execute upon you everything that you're breaking those terms allows me to do. It's contractual, 100%. So it also translates into what a husband has a right to vis-a-vis his wife. He has exclusive rights to her sexuality, exclusive rights right to certain things, and if she gives that to someone else, he has a right to kinah. And all of the consequences that he is allowed to wreak on her for her breaking of that exclusive contract. So so in that sense, it is the language of husband-wife, only from the husband's point of view. It is not a feeling that each spouse has because they're supposed to be... Oh, oh, absolutely not. And, And which makes a lot of sense. If you're talking about God and Israel, it makes perfect sense. There's not equity. Interesting that God binds God's self to a covenant arrangement but voluntarily, apparently, out of love. Um, but it is an arrangement, and it is a legal agreement. And if you break it, God is entitled to behave with kinah. And in, in our case, that means exile. For, for this relationship, it is very clearly stated in the text. The kinah results in exile. That is the consequence for you, Israel, stepping outside this exclusive arrangement First of all, exclusive. You can't have it with any other gods, but also if you don't keep your arrangement with me, taxation, you know, like tribute, you know, whatever, whatever the agreement is, we, and we got what it is. Then if you don't do that, the consequence is exile. Very much influenced, a lot of people want to say, by the exile. This is an exilic text. This is a post-exilic text. A lot of people want to argue D is post-exilic. So this is the Deuteronomist explaining how it could be that God's chosen people that God gave this land to got kicked out. How could that happen? Well, it's stated very clearly here how that could happen, right? You didn't keep the agreement. You broke our agreement. This is the natural consequence of that because you are not special. You are only special in that I picked you and you remain special if you remain in our special relationship. And you were given that choice freely, says the Midrash with the mountain hanging over their heads. <laughs> you were given that choice freely. You said yes. You didn't have to marry me. 
You didn't have to enter into this arrangement, but you said yes. Once you say yes, you're bound by the terms. And once you blow it, right, it's over in terms of you, you getting the benefits of staying under my protection. And the natural consequences of not having my protection anymore, think a king with a vassal king. If you don't have my protection, you are up for grabs. You're toast, right? Says the empire to the little independent kingdom. Yeah, three points on translations. This is the uh, feminine translation. And every time your translation has a pronoun, it's masculine. And here it's people or some generic mm-hmm. thing. Just a little point. Yep. The other thing in here, in, in the translation you read, it talked about fear of God. Ah, is here. What's in your Revere. Yeah, Revere. So that's in the the third point I just like to raise. This clearly says the Jews are the chosen people, and you've it's been emphasized here a great deal. And yet the Reconstructionists say we are not the chosen people. What's the problem? <laughs> okay, it uh, seems to be a conflict in the interpretation or definition of chosen. There's no conflict with the word chosen. Reconstructionism, just theologically, we do not believe in a God who chooses. So we decided we're not going to use, we don't need to use the language if we don't want to. We don't need to. It doesn't say we are not the chosen people. Baruch HaTadonai, we are not the chosen people. It just takes out, we don't want to reference something that we don't celebrate or believe to be central to who we are. So we just excised it. It's, the liturgy was written by the rabbis. We rewrote it. Okay, the so. rabbis put stuff from here in to the liturgy. They picked that. They chose it. <laughs> See what I did there? They chose, they chose chosenness language from here. There's a lot of other stuff in here. They chose chosenness and they put that in the blessings. All we did was say, we don't want to pick that part of this. So we're taking it out. Or we're going to say something else. Okay, but the, the original intent was indeed, uh, so when people say the Bible says we are the chosen people, that is one clear interpretation of it, which 100%. Reconstructionists have Reconstructionism rejected. admits that that's okay. our tradition. Okay. But says that's not the important part of our tradition to us. And when you make blessings and when you make liturgy, you pick what's important to you. The rabbis did that. It was important to the rabbis that we were the chosen people. It was not important to Reconstructionist thinkers, right? So Reconstructionist thinkers said, so let's take that out. We understand the rabbis did it. They put it in. We understand why. We want to reconstruct the liturgy. So we want to take out things that not only don't we really think are so important, but that now are offensive. Now chosenness is offensive because it's been used by anti-Semites. And so why would we keep it, said the Reconstructionist writers? Why keep it? It's now not only something we don't love. There's lots in the liturgy we don't love. But it's now really problematic. And when our non-Jewish neighbors come with us to shul and see that, is that really what we want to be saying to people? And the answer was no, it isn't. We are a chosen people. Every people is chosen by the divine to live into their particular arrangement with their understanding of what divinity is. This is ours. 
So if, if it's so if it's going to be problematic and offensive, and we don't really believe it anymore, just take it off. And do we choose actually the other side of that contract? Of course, of course. We of course. choose We're the choosing people. Yes, we're the choosing people. Yes. We choose to. Yes, yes, yes. With respect. Yeah, I, I know, but what I'm saying is, okay, that's what people do to redeem the word. That's what they do to redeem the concept. We don't need it. Right. Just take it out. A lot of people have the sense that the liturgy was given on Mount Sinai, and in fact, some of it was. So, well, some of we we take some of it and put in the liturgy, but the liturgy even among the Orthodox has changed. There are right. many many different prayer books going back a long period of time. And changes are not unusual. Changes Correct. are in the Jewish tradition. Correct. Uh, and, by the way, the liturgy wasn't set till very recently. And we don't agree anyway. There's Nusach Sfarad and Nusach Ashkenaz. Sfardim and Ashkenazim still daven different words. Still. By the time of the Talmud, there's still argument about how do you close the Amidah. Which are the brachot con- contained in the Amidah? So th- it's, the liturgy is very late getting set. And that never really gets set, because now you have a Reconstructionist prayer book, a conservative prayer book, this prayer book, and then people decide what's Misenai, what you can't mess with. Kaplan said, you're telling us what to mess with and not what not to mess with. We're going to mess with whatever we want to. It's ours. All right. So why didn't he wrestle more with Melech? Don't know. Uh, so this this chapter is called Vithanan. So uh, The Parsha is the called Vithanan. Right. So... If you do this, you will get that. And then Moses says, no, I did no, that. that's not the Etchanan. The Etchanan is that, that Moshe prayed for God's chain. God, wa- right. God, Moshe wants God's mercy to change the decree. Okay. That's how the Etchanan, that's what the Etchanan's about. Okay. Then it goes into all this conditional use permit stuff. Even though he was told no. Correct. Right. Cause that's a separate, that's its own thing. Then this is addressed to the people about here's here's the agreement. There's a separate scene in the beginning of Etchanan where Moshe talks to God about or pleads with God about getting in and doesn't. Mark? You know, it strikes me, too, that one of the things that causes so much trouble with this notion of chosenness um, is, of course, that it has uh, very strong narcissistic uh, implications, but also... Um, it has to do with the sadomasochistic defense against anxious object attachments. Oh, of course. That's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, it, uh, but I think, uh, you know, it, it causes, it causes a lot of, uh, causes a lot of anxiety and, uh, particularly it causes a lot of, um, uh, raising of issues of retribution by exclusion from from uh, connection with yeah. the object. Yes, right. And uh, and opens uh, in many ways invites and opens attack on that on those very grounds. Right. And so and and I think there's a reason, just the way we're designed, as you talk about always so brilliantly, like looking at Torah. Torah is written by human beings who are designed the way you just said. Um, and I think it's no accident that so much time and attention is given in our sacred texts to exile because it is exactly the primary anxiety 
which is exclusion, being being cast away from the beloved who will protect and nurture and nourish and right and, and lift up and give us a sense of ourselves, literally. And um, and so I think it's not an accident at all that our sacred texts written by people designed that way focuses so much on exile as the ultimate punishment, the, the ultimate consequence of breaking the ultimate agreement, because that's that's our existential anxiety is is exactly that is rupture from from the protector. Sarah, if instead of chosen, E.M., who substitute. I-N-G, choosing, yes. then yes. we choose to adhere to our beautiful tradition, and that is a choice every generation makes. It is absolutely the truth. Mehmet? Um, yeah, um, same point about Sarah's. Um, the notion of chosenness makes a lot more sense if you look at it from the perspective of responsibilities rather than privileges. So uh, I think it gives me comfort if I think, if I consider it from that perspective, that it's not that I'm a privileged person as the Jewish people. It's more about uh, that I'm um, a person with responsibilities towards myself, towards the world and towards my community. We are, we are, that we are, we are, Chosen to bear the yoke of the mitzvot. That's how the rabbis understand it. Like and a question. They understand it. We, we are bearing the yoke of 360, 300 and however, however many it is, Taryag, um, that. Um, so we are, we are bearing the weight of 613 responsibilities. That's what being chosen means. All the Jewish jokes about if this is being chosen, choose someone else. Right? Like, okay. Yeah. Final point, Mehmet. The question as well uh, about Shabbat, you you said um, the second part of it about Zahor, it's about uh, remembering that we were slaves in the land of Egypt, uh, looking at it from the perspective of liberation. Uh, in today's world, whom do we liberate on Shabbat? Well, chiefly ourselves, if we choose to take the spiritual practice seriously, which few of us do, myself included, I work on Shabbos. Um, it is it is chiefly us because we have, if you ask me, have become, and I'm not even using this metaphorically, we've become enslaved to success, achievement, productivity, instrumentalizing everything and everyone we come into contact with for our own ends in some way, form, or fashion, to technology, to, right, so we are slaves, and one day we're supposed to actually practice, right, freeing ourselves from our enslavement um, because that's how we're going to stay healthy, whole human beings who value other things because we'll have a relationship to other things. Um, and we're supposed to cultivate that on Shabbat. Again, few of us do. Um, and it's a shame because it is one of the things that really could help us, like Mark said, also get past our internalized understanding that we are slaves to these things. Because I think that we have internalized that, right? That that's what we are. We're human doings, not human beings. Um, I don't think any of us would argue that that is the most important part of liberation. But we are also supposed to build a community where no one else is expected to to be about that either. 
production, accumulation, manipulation, all of that's supposed to stop on Shabbos, right? I was in Jerusalem for a month. Oh my God, it was so frustrating. Nothing was open. There was nothing to do. Okay, Dash? About like the choosing versus chosen thing is that acting like like it can seem it can seem narcissistic to say that we're chosen, especially like I remember this. There was I have I had a non-Jewish friend who went to shul with me once, and there was a prayer that said, you know, what I tell you, <laughs> it said um, it was something like, "Blessed be God who made me a Jew," and he just kind of was like, "What do I do?" And it can just seem a little insulting to be like i mean i know that that's not what we're saying like we're special in the way that we do our stuff as opposed to because we're better than you but it can it can seem that way sometimes correct so this is one of the main reasons kaplan the founder of reconstructionist judaism said get rid of it because not only isn't it something we want to lift up it's something that when our neighbors look at it says something about us that we don't we're not trying to say so just take it out because it's problematic. So get rid of it. What's the problem? But the other thing I want to say about this chosenness business, and I'll shut up after this, we failed. That's the other reason that I don't like it. Why did it even make it in there? We blew it. If you take chosenness seriously, we blew it. The deal's off. We lost. We were chosen for a very special arrangement, and we blew it. And we were exiled, and we remain in exile. That is not something I want to celebrate. I don't know about y'all. So we choose, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, we blew it. Torah is a critique of the Jewish people. Torah is a condemnation of the Jewish people. The Jewish people wrote and canonized a text that is critical to the point where if you listen to Micha Goodman and you look at the book of Josiah, we go back to Egypt. The remnant in Israel go back to Egypt. The story begins with the liberation from Egypt and it ends with us back in Egypt because we blew it. That is not a story I love to reference. Okay, it's our learning. That's what we do, right? But it's like, okay, what's it about right now? What does this obligate me to right now if I take seriously this business as a practice that informs the kind of society I as an American am blessed to be able to vote in? That's the question for me. Chosenness, it didn't, we, we didn't do it. We, we didn't choose the right thing, says our, Story and says history, if you believe that theology. So that's why I, the whole chosenness business, I'm like, get rid of it. David? Um, Amy, um, Mamet really resonated with me because years ago, I took a class uh, taught by David Ellenson when he was still at HUC in Los Angeles. And this topic came up and David said that chosenness in that context really means we were chosen to bring ethical monotheism to the people. Oh, yeah, another defense of chosenness. Okay, yeah. thank you for that one. Right. We have now seven. That's great. Oh, we got another one. Um, I just, I just, I'm with, I'm with Kaplan. Just get rid of it. Get rid of it. It's not an important concept for us. If you want to take it seriously, we blew it. Get rid of it. All right. Um, I'm going to give you the closing for our shiur with... Uh, Rabbi Michael Lerner from Tikkun, 
um, who, which is a great site. If you don't know it, you should check out Tikkun um, and uh, bring forward the Ten Commandments via Rami Shapiro, who wrote a book called Minion, which I cannot recommend highly enough. It's a very small paperback called Minion, um, and he takes the idea of ten things and calls them the Ten Commitments. Um, and then has kind of a chapter discussing kind of, you know, like, how would we build a Jewish life that is really taking seriously obligations around 10 things? Um, it's just, it's lovely. Um, and by the way, I'm not saying I do it, right? I'm just saying I think it's aspirational, um, right? And and so I just, it's a way to, to reconstruct the 10 commandments for me um, that I want to leave you with. The 10 commitments. One. The power of transformation and healing is the ultimate reality of the universe and the source of transcendent unity. Aware of the suffering caused by not acknowledging the ultimate unity of all being, I vow to recognize every human being as a manifestation of the divine and to spend more time each day in awe and wonder of the grandeur of creation. Aware of the suffering is caused when we unconsciously pass on to others the pain, cruelty, depression, and despair that has been inflicted upon us, I vow to become conscious and then act upon all the possibilities for healing and transforming my own life and being involved in healing and transforming the larger world. Aspirational. Two, idolatry. Aware of the suffering caused by taking existing social realities, economic security, ideologies, religious beliefs, national commitments, or the gratification of our current desires as the highest value, I vow to recognize only God as the ultimate and to look at the universe and each part of my life as an evolving part of a larger totality whose ultimate worth is measured by how close it brings us to God and to love of each other. To stay in touch with this reality, I vow to meditate each day for at least 10 minutes and to contemplate the totality of the universe and my humble place in it. Three, do not take God in vain. Aware of the suffering caused by religious or spiritual fanaticism, I vow to be respectful of all religious traditions which preach love and respect for the other and to recognize that there are many possible paths to God. I vow to acknowledge that we as Jews are not better than others, and our path is only one of the many ways that people have heard God's voice. Blah, 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 addressing the distortions in our own right uh, tradition, and we will enthusiastically advocate for what we find compelling in Jewish tradition. It goes on and on and on like this. It's a long piece, so I don't want to read all of it out loud, but I wanted to give you a flavor of if we took these obligations as primary values, Pick your 10. It can be any 10. But if we base it in our tradition and we look at, at this by Rami Shapiro brought to us you know, through Rabbi Lerner, um, then I'm down with those 10 commitments. Right? I am so down with, all right, acknowledging, first of all, there is a, a totality, capital T, that is deserving of my ultimate attention and, and what do you call it, devotion or whatever, right? Um, Idolatry, that like we get distracted and worship all these other things, our own success, our own reputations, our own salaries, you know, fill in the, our, the size of our house, where we vacation, all these other things. And it's idolatry and it is damaging to us, to the planet, to other people. So I just, I feel like if we could do this, which you hear me say all the time about Kashrut, about this, about that, that 
the Ten Commandments, okay, they're ten. We have six thirteen. Like, so I'm not one who usually is like, ooh, the Ten Commandments. They're the big ones. Like, but I do believe what if we got serious about what are kind of the core commitments that we would be willing to organize everything else around? This is as good a shot as any I could come up with. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.